Good morning. We began uh, two weeks ago, and we in the middle of a sermon series called Enough. And today we're going to focus in on the same theme through this Enough series, and that is cultivating contentment. And our passage that we're going to look at a little bit later is Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13. It's been called an epistle of joy. Let that sink in. The Apostle Paul, sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, knowing that he's on death row, yet writing an epistle of joy. It's what Paul is communicating through this epistle of joy, is our circumstances do not have to eliminate our joy. And maybe that's what intrigues me about the passage we're going to read, and I am going to read it in a little bit, that we can have joy in spite of our circumstances, that we can have joy in spite of our trouble, that, that we can have joy even when things aren't going our way, even when it's been a lousy day at work, at home, at school, at church, wherever. I guess I've known too many grumpy Christians, too many joyless Christians, too many, too many Christians who, who don't have anywhere close to the circumstances that Paul was facing. And yet it doesn't seem like they've got a lot of joy. It doesn't seem like they are filled with joy, that that their hearts are overflowing with joy. Maybe they're filled with bologna, or maybe they're filled with lemon juice, but it doesn't appear that they're filled with much joy. But Paul, Paul in this passage, sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, knowing he's going to be dead in who knows how long, is writing, writing this epistle of joy to a church that he absolutely loves. Now, the church at Philippi, you may remember their story. It's told in in Acts chapter 16. Let me give you just the the Reader's Digest version of what happens in Acts 16. Acts 16, Paul has been traveling and and preaching the gospel, and he gets what, what theologians call, Bible scholars call, the Macedonian call. God appears to Paul in a vision and and tells him to go into Europe and to spread the gospel there. And so Paul does. And the very first stop... Is this place called Philippi. Philippi is named for King Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. It was a Roman colony, very, very Roman. And that's the first place he goes. Now, usually what Paul would do when he was going into a new city is he would find the Jews who are worshiping there. Philippi did not have a synagogue, and so usually the Jews would then go to the river, and that's where they would have their worship and, and prayer time. And Paul would go to the Jews first. Why would he go to the Jews first? Well, he spoke their language. Remember, he had been a Pharisee, so, so he knew their lingo. He knew what made them tick. He knew that they were praying for a Messiah. And he would show up and say, listen, I know you're praying for the Messiah, and I got good news. The Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus the Nazarene. And so that's how Paul would usually go, and so that's exactly what he does in Philippi. He goes down to the river. Sure enough, there's some Jews that are worshiping there. He starts telling them about Jesus. And we're told the very first convert is a lady named Lydia. Lydia was from Asia Minor. Lydia was, was a convert to Judaism, and now she's a convert to Christianity. And, and Lydia was a very wealthy lady. She sold purple. She was, she was uh, uh, probably held in high esteem among that community. She's the very first convert. The second convert happened when Paul and Silas were walking around Philippi, and they had been doing this for a few days, and a demon-possessed girl was shouting out after them and telling everyone, hey, they're here to tell you about Jesus and just kind of being an annoyance. And Paul turned around and cast the demon out of this girl. She's the second convert. 
Now, that didn't make everybody happy. In fact, it didn't make the owners of that slave girl very happy at all. They'd been making money off of her and her fortune-telling. And so they caused a big brouhaha and had Paul uh, and Silas sent to prison. And they were beaten and put in, in jail. And that's the time when Paul and Silas at midnight, at midnight after having been beaten, at midnight sitting in a jail, they're singing and praising the Lord. Now, I don't know what they were singing. It wasn't the Charles Wesley song that we just sang, you know, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I think they would have liked to have sung that song. That probably wasn't the song they were singing, but they were singing at midnight. And that's when there was an earthquake and the doors all opened up and all the jail cells and the jailer was about to kill himself, about to fall on his sword because he thought everybody escaped. And Paul said, whoa, 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 slow down. We haven't gone anywhere. And he led that jailer to the Lord, him and his household. That's the third convert. So imagine this church at Philippi, the very first convert, Lydia, rich lady from Asia Minor. The second convert, a slave girl, probably a, a Greek. The third convert, a Roman, a Roman guard. It's a very diverse church. They had rich folks and poor folks and folks kind of in the middle. They had folks, Lydia, she had converted to Judaism, so she worshiped God, just didn't know Jesus. Slave girl didn't probably worship anybody. She was demon-possessed. The the guard, he was probably an emperor worship. That's what most of the Romans would have been. All these diverse backgrounds and diverse uh, 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 categories that were all at work here. And someone from Asia, someone from Greek, someone from Rome. Lydia, probably older. The the slave girl, probably younger, a teenager. The guard, probably someplace in the middle. It's a diverse group. They're the church. They're the church like what we're going to be celebrating next Sunday night in that Growing Together night. Next Sunday night, as Doc told you, 5 o'clock, come here, have dinner. We're going to go over that assessment. We're going to talk about what it means to grow together. But I'll tell you right now, here's here's your, you know commercial what it means growing together is that everybody old folks young folks rich folks poor folks black folks white folks everybody 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 that that we can come together in jesus christ that's the beauty of the church the 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 church isn't a place where everybody looks alike or sounds alike or thinks alike no 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 that's not the beauty the, the beauty of the church What we want is where we can be a a, a people that are gathered because of our because of Jesus' love for us, and maybe we have different economic backgrounds, or maybe we have different even religious backgrounds, or come from different regions, or have different likes and dislikes, but we can all come together in Jesus Christ. That's the church at its best. That's the church when it's when it's glorifying Jesus, when 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 people who maybe even under normal circumstances wouldn't even, you know, uh, uh, maybe not even get along, but because of Jesus, we are one. That's what's going on here in Philippi. I think that's why Paul loves them so much, because this is, this is the, this is a beauty. This is what happens when people from various places come together, all surrounded, all one in Christ. So Paul loves these people, and he's, and he's getting ready to write them, and he's also writing them a thank you, because these folks are worried about Paul. Why wouldn't they be? He's on death row. And so they had taken up a collection and, and sent it to Paul so that it would take care of his needs as the prison system there wasn't like the prison system today. They would let you starve to death in, in a dungeon if somebody wasn't bringing you in food. They'd let, you know, if you, didn't have, if you didn't have anyone to take care of your needs, well then, too bad for you. 
So they sent an offering to Paul, and Paul is writing this letter to, to the Philippians, thanking them for that. Now, there's also a few other things. There's some personal conflict between Yodia and Sintiki, a couple of ladies in the church, and sometimes even in good churches that happens, and so that's what's going on here. And so he's addressing that, but mostly he's addressing his thanks for them. And he uses it as a teaching moment. And this is, this is what he says. Here, finally, 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 we're getting to the passage. Philippians 4, it says this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but have no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And I'll read verse 13 too because it's one of my favorites. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is, is he is content even in this less than perfect situation, chained to a Roman guard, sitting in a Roman prison. Paul is saying, even in those situations that are, that are very difficult, God can empower us, God can enable us, God can infuse us with his glory and his might. Paul is saying that Jesus is the source of his contentment. Jesus is the reason for his joy. And you'd say, yeah, 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 I, we know all that, Pastor. Jesus is the source of our joy. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Now, someone was supposed to say where right there, but that's all right. You guys didn't go to Sunday school, I understand. I have learned the secret of contentment. Again, remember, he's content while sitting on death row. He's content while chained to a Roman guard, sitting in a Roman prison. His contentment was not based on his outward circumstances. It was not based on any of those things that generally we think we have to have for contentment. His contentment was based on an inner joy. Now make sure you understand that that is a countercultural statement. To think that our joy is not... uh, predicated on our outward circumstances that's not the way our culture thinks our culture thinks if you're going to be content the only way you're going to be content is if you're happy happiness equals contentment in in our world today but paul is saying contentment is not based on my outward circumstances contentment is not based on on the things that i have acquired or or anything else contentment is based solely on jesus christ See, our culture has taught us that if we really want to be content, then then really that's based on our personal happiness. That's the ultimate achievement. And you you can you can watch any of the self-help shows, watch Oprah you know, on end, or go to the self-help book in the bookstore and pull out any book, and they'll tell you that in order to, to be content, you've got to be happy. And if you aren't happy, then do whatever you have to do to get happy. I mean, you you just need to, you know, if it means Getting, getting whatever, doing whatever, spending whatever, divorce whatever, just do whatever you have to do to get happy because you deserve it. But I, I'm not so sure that Paul would have agreed with that statement. It, you run into dangerous territory, dangerous theologically, when you say that God's ultimate plan is for my happiness right here on earth. Because if we believe that that is the ultimate being happy right here on earth then we skip a lot of what god wants for us namely that we serve him and we get to a place of a twisted notion of who god is and what god is about if if 
if the ultimate experience on earth is our personal happiness and that God has to supply that, then, it, then the next step is if I pray enough or if I give enough or if I live this way or that way, then God is obligated to give me happiness. Listen, God does not want you to be happy if what you're doing is, is wrong or unwise to obtain that happiness. Does that make sense? I mean, sin can, can cause... Uh, a fleeting moments of happiness to be sure uh, people who, who choose to live a sinful lifestyle for that moment and for maybe even several moments can, can say they're, they're, they're happy it's pleasurable for that moment but hear me sin always leads to heartache it always catches up with you maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but a sinful life always catches up with you And so God doesn't want you to be happy if you're doing the wrong things to obtain that happiness. And God doesn't want you to be happy when our happiness is based solely on things of this world. You see, we have a happiness obsession, I think, when when it seems like we think, all I need to do is get something, whatever that is, and I'll be happy. Get a new car, get a new job, get a new wife, get a new husband, get a new church, get a new whatever, then I'll be happy. Our culture has conditioned us to think whatever it is that we don't have is the one thing that will really make us happy. And what's weird about that is some of the things that we don't have didn't even exist, you know, 10 years ago, but we were happy then. We think, oh, I've got to have it, or else I can't be happy. Just watch any TV commercial. And, and they all proclaim, you know, if you get this new car, you'll be happy. If you get this new miracle drug, you'll be happy. If you get this new, you know, detergent, oh my, you'll be happy. You know, I remember, what was the, what was the, this takes me back, this is, this is only for people who are my age and older. Remember when, when the, the commercial for, what was it, uh, ring around the collar, remember that? What was that, a detergent? Whisk, yeah, whisk, you know, and it was, oh, he's got ring around the collar, as if that was the worst possible thing in the whole world. But if you got whisk, woohoo, you're happy. No more ring around the collar. That's crazy. See, according to our society, happiness equals contentment. And to get happy, then you just need more or better or faster or prettier. To be happy, you've got to get. But that is not what Jesus says. Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To be happy, to be a follower, to have that inward joy, peace. Deny, not acquire, not indulge, not get. See, followers of Jesus say, I choose Jesus over everything else. I choose Jesus over money. I choose Jesus over career goals. I choose Jesus over getting drunk or looking at porn or premarital sex or or my own even personal freedoms or what other people think of me or even at times when it comes to that, even my family or, or fleeting pleasures of happiness. I choose Jesus over all of that. See, that's what Paul is talking about here. How can he be content sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, on death row? It's because it wasn't from anything that this whole world had to offer. It was only because of what he experienced through Jesus Christ. 
see, Paul is saying you don't necessarily, he didn't necessarily have happiness. He wasn't jumping up and down, woohoo, I'm on death row, lucky me. But he had joy. He had deep down inner joy. You know what I think it is? There's a word that describes followers of Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, it's used 130 times to describe a follower of Jesus. I, you would think any time that the Bible uses one word to describe followers of Jesus 130 times, that there must be something to that. And the word, the Greek word, is doulos. Do you know what doulos is? Sometimes it's been translated because I think the Bible translators wanted to tone it down a little bit. It's been translated as servant, but almost every case where it's used outside of the New Testament, it's used for the word slave. And those first century Christians were saying, you know what I am? I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. That means Jesus owns me. Jesus has me. See, there's a big difference, especially in the first century, between a servant and a slave. A, a servant worked for somebody. A slave was owned by somebody. That's a big difference. Slaves have no rights. Slaves are the possession of, uh, they don't have any possessions of their own. They don't have an identity of their own. They're, 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 they're masters their owner's servant. They don't, slaves don't get time off. There's no vacation days. There's no spring break for a slave. I don't think many of us would aspire to be a slave. But when you read the New Testament, that's exactly what they're calling themselves. When Peter was writing uh, his second letter, he doesn't begin that letter by saying, hey, I'm Peter. I'm the big cheese. I'm the guy who walked on water for a second. I, I'm the one who Jesus came and said, I'm going to build my church on him. No, this is how Peter begins Second Peter. He says, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just Peter. John uses that term. Timothy uses that term. Jude uses that term. James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? He doesn't say, hey, I'm James. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I'm a pretty big cheese in this Christianity thing. No, he starts off by saying, this letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, in this letter to the Philippians, he doesn't say, I'm Paul. I've traveled the world. I've started churches in every port. I'm a pretty big deal. He said, this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Slaves slaves of Jesus Christ. You see, following Jesus, Jesus doesn't always offer us momentary feelings of happiness. No, he gives us something better than that. Something deeper, richer, purer. Deep joy. Deep within my heart. There's a group of, of missionaries who went at the time, what's now known as Suriname in South America. And they wanted to reach, this is in the, the 19th century, they wanted to reach some, some slaves on a nearby island. There was only one problem, though, to, to reach those slaves. The, the plantation owners, and there were some huge plantations that had many slaves, the plantation owners would only let the slaves talk to other slaves. They didn't want the, their slaves to get any of the ideas of the freedom that some of the, the slaves were experiencing in the United States. And so, so they wouldn't let slaves talk to, only talk to other slaves, that's it. And these missionaries wanted to share the gospel with them. So do you know what they did? This seems almost incredible, crazy. They sold themselves into slavery. 
so that they could reach those slaves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they, they toiled in the hot, tropical island so that they might share the love of Jesus Christ. That seems crazy, but you know, you know why it's not so crazy? They simply became what they already were. They were already slaves. They were slaves to Jesus. And so they became a slave so that they could share with those real slaves what it was all about. The question comes to who owns you? Who's Lord of you? You know, to answer that question, it, it determines how you behave, how you think, where you spend your money and your time, what you value. It will determine where you experience contentment. Is it just in the stuff that I can acquire, or is it something deeper, richer, purer than that? See, Jesus doesn't offer happiness. What he offers, it's not something you can buy at Macy's. It's not something you can buy at a car dealership. He offers something deeper than that. The New Testament word, the, the word that's used in the Beatitudes is, is makarios, which sometimes is translated happy, but that's a very poor translation. It's, it's blessed. It's, it's more than even that. It's a supreme blessing, if you will. In other words, God wants you to be more than happy. He wants you to be more than, 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 than satisfied and content with something that's here today and gone tomorrow. He, he wants you to be more than, than just thrilled with a certain experience that, that is here and gone. No, he has something richer, deeper, better than that. He longs for you to be blessed, a holy, deep satisfaction, blessed. Psalm 112.1 says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. The Rob Prince translation of that verse would go something like this, More than happy. More than happy are you when you discover that God Almighty has a powerful, lasting grace that reaches down to even you. And can it be? And it reaches you, that grace of God reaches you. And there is great delight in claiming and standing on and proclaiming those wonderful promises of God. God, you see, God wants you to be more than happy. A contentment in spite of your circumstances. Jesus described that, that experience as the abundant life. He wasn't talking about having a bigger uh, bank account or having more cars and, and, than, than you can fit in your garage. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about contentment in spite of our circumstances. Maybe the best way for me to describe it is to describe the flip side of happiness. Well, what's the opposite of happiness? You know, it's sadness, right? We would all say that. In the Bible, there's only two places that anyone is described as being sad. The first place, or one of the places, is when Jesus is talking to the disciples and telling them that one of them is going to betray him. It's in Matthew 26. And he tells them, you know, one of you are going to betray me, and, and the disciples, rightfully so, they're, they're sad about that. You know, one of their own is, is going to be a, a Benedict Arnold. And so the Bible says, and they were very sad and began to say to one another, after, surely you don't mean me, Lord. They're sad. They're brokenhearted. One of their own is going to betray Jesus. But the only other place, the only other place that anyone is described as sad, it's not any of the, the lame people that come to Jesus. It's not any of the beggars that come to Jesus. It's not the blind or the, or the sick. None of them are described as sad. You would think so, right? Somebody's got leprosy, he'd be sad. 
No, the only one, the only person that's described as sad in the Bible is in Matthew 19, when a guy who's been down through the ages has been called the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus and had a lot of questions, said, what do I have to do to, return, to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you know, well, you got to keep the commandments. I do that. And Jesus knew exactly where this guy's heart was. And so he said to him, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And the Bible then says, when he heard that, the young man heard this, and he went away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. And I don't think Jesus comes to all of us and tells all of us, you know, sell everything you got, come and follow me. He doesn't, he knew where that guy's heart was. He knew what that guy's priorities were. He knew what road that guy was traveling. And basically, Jesus is saying, all right, we're coming to a crossroads right here. Who are you going to serve? Are you living your life for the things you can purchase and all of the things that your money can buy? Are you willing to live your life for me? Come and follow me. Jesus is offering this guy to be one of the 12 disciples. Come and follow me. Be there. You're going to have the most exciting life, the greatest adventure you've ever been on. Come and follow me, brother. But he went away sad because he had great wealth. I think Jesus comes to us and faces us and tells us we're at a crossroads. What are you going to do with Jesus? There was a guy by the name of J.P. Moreland about 10 years ago now wrote a book he's a, a theology professor at Talbot School of Theology and he wrote a book on, on our obsession with happiness in our country and he said that, that people he believes that people are addicted to this relentless pursuit of, of happiness but he said in the book what's happening is the exact opposite that people are becoming more and more unhappy as they pursue it, they try to get happy by getting things, getting that, buying this, going there. And in fact, what's happening is the exact opposite. That in, in the course of all of our lifetimes, there's never been a time when folks have been, been richer in the United States, when they've been richer or healthier or more youthful or safer than, 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 than what they are now. But they're not getting happier. In fact, it's, it's, they're, they're, they describe being more unhappy than ever. What's going on? It's thinking that happiness, contentment, is what I can acquire. Happiness, contentment, is, is some having some kind of experience. When Jesus is saying, no, happiness, joy, deep down joy, it's much better than some fleeting, fleeting feeling that you can get from purchasing something at Macy's. That joy, deep down joy, is all about relationships with him. And it's saying, saying that Jesus is enough. Oh, what I need is Jesus. And if you're here today and you're saying, you know, my life isn't going so great. And I'm not telling you to go buy something from Apple. I'm saying get something from Jesus. You are enough that you don't disappoint. People will disappoint. Things will disappoint. Places will disappoint. But you, you, you never disappoint. We want to follow you with all that we have and all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.